Well, today we are continuing our study on Jesus' Lordship, and this is week number four. The title of the series is just simple, Jesus is Lord, and our hope is to create clarity around that topic so that you understand what it means and how it applies to your life, and then it cultivates a sense of courageous conviction so that while others might fold in their faith under cultural pressure, my hope is us being convinced that Jesus is Lord. We'll be able to stand firm in that fact and have unwavering allegiance to Jesus as Lord of our life. Now, when you look at the early church, you could see that kind of radical faith and radical commitment because they were convinced that Jesus was the Lord and they were able to stand in the face of severe persecution. So we took a look a few weeks ago at just the simple preaching in the early church. We preached that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let's kind of circle these words and kind of rehash what we know. One is that Jesus points us in the direction of his humanity, but also his mission. The name Jesus means God saves. And so Jesus was born of a virgin, sent to earth with a singular mission, that is to seek and save the lost. We preach Jesus. Look at Christ. That word means Messiah. It points to his divinity and his authority. So we believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God in flesh. He is the personification of that Old Testament name for the Lord, the I Am. He's the great I am, the full embodiment of God. We preach Jesus Christ, notice this, that he is Lord. The word Lord means sovereign, almighty, in control, powerful. So putting those together, who Jesus is, he's God, and also what he has done entitles him to be the Lord, and more personally, to be my Lord and to be your Lord. On the basis of who he is, what he's done, he has the right to tell us what to believe. Jesus as Lord means he can tell us how to parent our kids. Jesus as Lord means that he can dictate our steps to our career path. Jesus as Lord means that he can tell us who to vote for. Jesus as Lord means that he can tell us what to do with our body. Jesus is Lord. Now, there are a lot of people who say, well, I want, I want Jesus to save me. I, I, I want to go to heaven when I die. But in terms of being in control of my life, let's not get crazy. I want to be in control of my own life. Well, that's a problem. It's a problem. Because Jesus has earned the right to be Lord, and he must be the Lord of every Christ follower's life. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we found this out in week number 2. It says we must, look at that, we must worship, we must honor, we must recognize Christ's place as being the Lord of our life. That means that Jesus must be the Lord of your dating life. He's got to be the Lord of your home life. He has to be the Lord of your habits. Listen to this. He's even got to be the Lord of your hurts. You're going to go through stuff in life. You're going to have some disappointments. And if you decide you're going to be in control of your hurts, you know what it'll do? You'll drive yourself into a ditch of despair. 
But when Jesus is the Lord of your hurts, he can deal with it and he can heal the pains of your life. You got to let the Lord be the Lord over your wounds. He's got to be Lord of all of your life because that's who he is. He's the Lord. Now, here's the core understanding that we want to make sure we have in our minds. We're on the same page as we take steps forward in this series. You've got to know that Jesus, listen, he is God. He's earned the right to be your Lord. So you've got to recognize and you've got to surrender to his place in your life every area. Like his lordship, his authority over every area of your life. Now, last week, we started to drill down into some specific ways that Jesus expresses his lordship where it affects our life. We talked about the fact Jesus is our Lord. He's our Lord, not just my Lord, not just your Lord. He's our Lord. There's a lot of us in Jesus. Come on, y'all. I worked really hard on that this week. I got to have a little, got to have a little more than that. So his lordship is not just, listen, it's not just a personal thing. It's also a corporate thing. He's Lord of all of us. The New Testament talks about serving our Lord and the cross of our Lord Jesus, the kingdom of our Lord, the mercy of our Lord. All those descriptions give us this community sense of how his lordship covers us, it connects us, and there should be a commitment in our life to want to be a part of one another because Jesus is our Lord. Now, Today we're going to talk about the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest. And here's what I want to seed into your mind. I want you to be interested in coming to this conclusion from the message, and that is engaging in the work of the Lord. Because he's the Lord of the harvest, I want you to consider engaging in the work of the Lord. Take your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to focus on verses 35 through 38. I do want to give uh, you as a faith family, a church family, just a shout out. Thank you for all the ways in which you have shown tremendous grace and compassion to my wife. We had my mother-in-law's funeral on Friday and all the ways that you sent cards, emails, calls, flowers, just it really meant a lot to her. And so we continue to pray for you, Mama Jill, as you walk through this season of grief. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we're going to start reading. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, look at this, the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. I want you to put your eyes on that phrase, the good news of the kingdom. That's what he was telling people. That's what he's talking to people about the good news of the kingdom. You say, well, what is that? Well, in the Old Testament, people were taught to look forward to a time when there would be a Messiah who would usher into the world a new order, a new authority, a good and different kind of kingdom. It would be, in many ways, a resurrection of the kingdom of David, but unlike David's, this kingdom would be eternal. Never ending. No empire would ever be able to conquer it. Now, for that reason, there were people that were expecting that when the Messiah would show up, that he would reestablish 
Israel's dominance in the world as a nation as in the days of King David. With the most immediate consequence of that being that the Messiah would uproot and overthrow the Roman Empire who had taken over Israel and now were asserting its its government agenda, its morals, its military might on the people of God, and understandably, they hated it. Hated it. So when Jesus announced the introduction of his kingdom, it got people's attention. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus took this prophecy from the Old Testament and applied it to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor, this new moment, has come. Jesus got finished reading that. And in essence, he said, the time is now and I am he. But something threw people off. There are a lot of people who were familiar with the prophecies related to Messiah, but they were unfamiliar that there were actually two distinct manifestations of the kingdom that were foretold. One would be a future, or maybe say it this way, a final manifestation of the kingdom, an end-time manifestation, one that's coming, maybe sooner than some of us think. And with that manifestation, the Messiah will establish, listen to this, a full, earthly, and eternal version of his rule. And so as you think about that, we take hope in the fact Jesus is coming back someday. And when he does, he's going to establish this full kingdom on the earth. When he returns, he will deal with every evil and he will vanquish every foe. And the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as he returns, the Bible says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no no pain. All these things are gone forever. Now, that's what people were expecting when Jesus first appeared. They were expecting the final version of the kingdom, not realizing that it was prophesied that there would be a first and a final. Now, in the first manifestation of the kingdom, there is a priority, an emphasis placed on things that are internal, not external. So Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 52. He will startle many nations. People aren't ready for this. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. What would catch people so off guard about the manifestation of, of Jesus. Isaiah 53, nobody saw this coming. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was 
pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. See, Isaiah foretold that there would be a demonstration of the kingdom that would first come, listen to this, with a spiritual priority over everything else. Jesus would be a suffering servant before he would return as a warrior. And so people weren't aware of that. And so they were confused when Jesus offered no calls to overthrow the Roman Empire. He organized no political action committees. There was no military command in Jesus' first appearing. There was just simply a priority on the condition of the heart, dealing with the damned, damaging effects of disobedience, of ignorance, of rebellion, of mistakes, all the ways that constitute living apart from God. Jesus made a point of emphasis on the heart, but people didn't get it because they were looking for a different kind of Messiah. Not even Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus, and when he did, he said, hey, y'all, he's coming. Like, it's here, look out. He's coming. But not even John got it. In fact, he sent messengers to Jesus and said, ask him this. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Are you it? Because you don't look like it. You don't act like it. Jesus told him, go back to John. And tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, Jesus said all of these manifestations of miracles that I'm performing, they are giving you a hint. They are pointing you in the direction of what I'm about right now, which is mankind's ultimate problem, which is his heart. The issue is not which party is in control in Congress. It's who's in control of your heart now. That's where Jesus is aimed. But people were like confused. So in Matthew chapter 9, the same chapter we read from earlier, there's this moment which illustrates the priority that Jesus is looking for right now, which is the heart. Group of people brought to Jesus a paralyzed man. And Jesus said to the man, seeing their willingness to come to Jesus, he sees him and says, be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you read the account, nobody's saying anything about sins. They're just coming to help her friend walk again. And yet Jesus, when he saw him, said, your sins are forgiven. Everybody was like, what? Huh? Does he think he has the authority to forgive sins? And so Jesus, in answering kind of their curiosity, he said, is it easier 
to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Seems to me it's kind of easier, you know, your sins are forgiven. Hey, you're forgiven. Hey, you're forgiven. That seems pretty easy when compared to get up and walk. So Jesus says, just so that you'll know that I have the power and the authority to deal with the most significant issue, which is the heart. He looked at the man and said to him, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Because the priority of Jesus in his coming, his kingdom, his work right now is focused on the priority of people's hearts. Is Jesus Lord in your heart? That's where he's aimed. That's what has his attention right now. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion means to be stirred. It means to feel something really deep. The word is actually the same word we use for the word spleen. It means gut level, like to feel something at the gut level. Well, what did he, what did he feel? Why did he feel compassion for the crowds? What about the crowds drew his compassion? Well, they were harassed and helpless. What does that mean? Literally, the words are torn and trashed. People were torn up. They were messed up. They were jacked up. And they were being treated like the trash, just thrown out. Jesus looked at people. He looked at the crowds and he had compassion. He could see how people's choices and decisions had trashed their life. He could see how the devil was at work jacking up people's life, messing them up. He could see how the Roman Empire was traumatizing and terrorizing people. He could even see how religious leaders in his day had no interest in the people. They were only interested in themselves. People were were torn up and they were trashed. It got his attention. It moved his heart. Why? Because that's where he's focused right now is on people and their lack of wholeness and experiencing his wholeness. Earlier in Matthew, in chapter 4, it details what these crowds kind of looked like that came to Jesus. It says people began bringing everyone who was sick. If they were demon-possessed, epileptic, paralyzed, sick, diseased, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. So all around Jesus is this crowd of people who are are sick, are hurt. They have infirmities and disabilities and challenges. And Jesus sees how they've been torn up and trashed. And his heart is moved by it. I'm going to challenge you. In the next few seconds to just change some of the things that you sometimes have thought when you've read passages about Jesus healing people. Because sometimes when we read, like he heals all the diseases, I think there's some kind of preset in our mind where we imagine Jesus doing that in a way that's very impersonal and almost reduces him to like an ATM machine dispensing healing. 
You love that. Or we've seen people on television, like religious faith healer types that are very dramatic, and we may even think of Jesus as kind of, you know, acting like those guys and just... And so I want you to reconnect with a more biblical picture of Jesus who feels people's hurts. He's not impersonal. He's not distant. He's not just blowing on people. He's actually standing beside them, feeling their distress. He's listening to their story. He's touching their wounds. He's sobbing with them when they feel the release of their burdens. You you go talk to a frontline worker with people who are broken and busted and need help. You, You go talk to someone who's a social worker. Or you talk to a counselor. Or you talk to someone in child protective services. And how they have to deal face to face, eye to eye, heart to heart, traumatic wounding. Or you you talk to firemen and emergency care workers and police officers and people who are on the front lines and the kind of trauma that they see in people's lives. And you you think about frontline workers and first responders, and there's a part of me that wonders sometimes, like, how do they sleep at night? When you see that much trauma and that much hurt and that much pain, like, how do you sleep at night? And I think we all appreciate and we understand like the burden that they feel because of the the things that they see. What I want you to catch in this moment is Jesus is not an ATM dispensary. He's not some kind of, you know, TV evangelist. He's actually with people, with them in their hurts and pains, and it moves him. He has compassion on them because he sees how their life hurts. He gets in the middle of their bloody mess and he heals them. There's a TV show about the life of Jesus called The Chosen. Part of what I appreciate, appreciate about the show is how it animates his humanity. And there's a scene, two-minute scene, I want to show it to you, two-minute scene, where it helps us to focus our eyes better on this kind of compassion. This particular scene is Jesus returning from being with the crowds and standing with people who are hurting and healing all of these diseases. The disciples have been around a campfire arguing about who's greater. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking up who's been with the people, who's been having compassion and and healing their diseases. And his mother, the character of his mother, is going to approach him in this moment. But I want to let this recast your appreciation for Jesus' compassion.
Good night. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of hurting people. But the workers are few. There are people that would rather sit around the fire and debate while people are hurting. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The term send out is probably better translated thrust out because there's a sense of urgency embedded in the request. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust out workers. F.D. Bruner writes this about the urgency of asking God to thrust out workers. He says it could refer to workers who are already in the field, who need to have a fire lit under them to thrust them out of their comforts into the world of need. Yes, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers because there's a lot of hurting people. 
but maybe also not only pray, we should feel a little heat on the seat to be engaged in the work of the Lord. You say, well, how? How can I do that? I'm glad you asked. Three words I want you to take in today in your response to Jesus. If he's Lord, come on. If he's Lord, if he's Lord of your life, if he's the Lord of the harvest, here's three words I want you to take in. See, seek, and send. See, seek, and send. First word, see. Seeing is about being sensitive enough to see what Jesus sees around you. If he's the Lord of your life, he's going to help you notice and see what he sees. And then he's going to stir you with his compassion for what you see. God help us if we see what he sees and then just walk away. He's the Lord of the harvest. He sees. He wants us to see. And he wants to stir our hearts. Seek. Seek. Seeking is about being proactive to find ways that we can engage in the participation of his work. Notice that. Seek. It requires some initiative. It requires some effort on our part to see how can I get involved in his work. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Watch this. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. You say, well, I'm not a pastor. That's all right. You don't have to be. These brothers and sisters weren't either. And yet they were directed to find their place to work enthusiastically for the Lord. Look at this. For nothing that you do for the Lord is ever useless. You ever feel like stuff you do is useless? Some of the things you do every day in the routine of your life and your job, you ever just, man, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Well, guess what? You got an opportunity to be a part of something that's not vain. And it's not empty. And it's not useless. And so I want to encourage you to prioritize your involvement in the work of the Lord. You can take the uniqueness of who you are and the gifting of who you are and the places where God has put you and right there where you are, you can do the Lord's work. Yeah, you can do the Lord's work here at Turning Point, but guess what? God's doing a lot of work outside the halls of this church. And you can get involved in those things. You, you can be a participant in that work. I mean, we've got people that work in crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, Family Guidance and Outreach Center, making a difference in domestic violence in our schools, Lubbock Impact. There are people teaching good news clubs to elementary school students, found, widows speak. There's all these ways that people are finding like a hand in God's work all over the place. And so I want to encourage you, seek. You look. Find ways you can be involved in the works. Y'all wouldn't even know where to start. Well, we'll help you. <laughs> look on the screen. You can see a QR code, number that you can text. We will work with you personally to help you take a step in the direction of finding a place where you can participate in the work. Again, in our house or somewhere else, it doesn't matter. Just be involved in his work. See what Jesus sees. If he's the Lord of the harvest, you got to see what he sees. 
And then you got to seek. How can I participate? Third word, send. That's all about participation as it relates to support and blessing. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I can't really do a whole lot, but, you know, I can give. Hang on. That's a lot. Don't, don't down talk that. We've got ministry partners in the field every day. It takes resources to do what they do. And, and the great thing about you blessing and supporting is, watch this, you can actually go without going by sending. You can actually speak without speaking by sending. Listen to what Jesus said. This is Jesus, Matthew 10, 41. If you receive a prophet, if you're good to a prophet, if you bless a prophet, if you receive them, if you welcome them, if you support them, if you receive a prophet as one speaks for God, you'll be given the same reward as a prophet. Are you seeing that? And so having like open hands, you're open to the Lord. I mean, I want to receive everything that the Lord has to offer me, but I want to keep my hands open and not clench on what God gives me. I want to keep my hands open so that I can receive openly and then send openly. Support and bless. Some of you go like, yeah, man, I knew it would kind of come around to money. Listen, you don't have to give a dime in this house. All right, you, 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 we were, we're glad to receive it, but you don't have to do that. Give it somewhere else, but don't, don't be a person who closes their fist on God's goodness and have an open hand and send, bless, send. It's a hard practice, but man, there's no other stride that puts you in touch with the Lord of the harvest, like seeing and seeking and sending.